I want to invite you all to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, we're continuing on in our series called King of My Heart. Um, and this week we're talking about David, who's the second king, uh, second king of Israel after Saul. We talked about Saul last week from 1 Samuel 15. And this week we're going to be talking about David. And uh, there is a lot of scripture written about David. You could read about David from 1 Samuel 15 all the way to 1 Kings chapter 2. And that's a lot if you're looking in your Bible. And so if you're interested in that, I would commend that to you. Take some time this week. Read about him because we are just going to do a kind of a cursory overview of David. That's about all we can do uh, here. But we want to see today specifically in 2 Samuel 7 a covenant that's made uh, from God to David that actually comes to us as well, as we'll see. And so I would invite you to turn Second Samuel 7, and we're going to read verses 1 through 17, and I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. And so stand with me this morning. Second Samuel 7, starting in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, 
Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Pray with me. Father, we come to you now as we are eager and we want to hear from you. We see so much just in these words here that has flown or has come basically through David to us in Christ. And so, Father, we ask that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds. Give us listening ears. And, Father, may you speak through me, and may I speak your word to your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephanie and I uh, purchased a home, our first home, in 2002. We got married in 2001 purchased our first home in 2002. It was a townhouse in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And it was a small little townhouse, 1,400 square feet, but it was brand new. And we were really excited about this place. It's a good place for us. And it was one of those, uh, I think it's called San Francisco-style homes. Technically, you came in on the first floor and you had two other floors. It was really thin and tall, back into the side of a hill. Well, in the back part, as you walked in the front door, was like where you had your washer, dryer, your HVAC, your uh, water heater, but also had some undeveloped uh, area back there. And we were like, huh, this is dead space. We could use this. Let's turn it into an office. And so we decided to do the work. But in order to do that, we had to get our friend, our friend Joe, who was a contractor. And he helped us build this. Uh, I, he and I developed the plans. I bought the materials. He supplied all the tools and the, know, and the knowledge. And I was just a willing helper uh, along with. And he taught me many things as we did this and as we built this together. Uh, he taught me things like how to use a nail gun rightly. <laughs> so what happens is when you miss in a small space of cinder block and concrete, nails fly around at high speeds. And so you have to learn how to use it correctly. And so I did, but it was, it was a lot of fun in the end. Uh, no one was injured, and we got it done, and it was, it was our little office that we got to really enjoy. Well, um, you could say that in this process, I participated. Uh, it was really Joe who was leading the way and building this for us, and I was just kind of like the, uh, the lackey, so to speak. But in this passage with David, uh, his desire to build a house for God, it's honorable, it's good, and it's great that he wants to do this. But he's not the one to do it, as we've just read. And it's not because he's dangerous with a nail gun, but it's because God is like building something that is eternal, that's going to last forever. And so as we enter this passage, we're met with these verses uh, in 2 Samuel 7. We're met with these first few verses of this guy named David. And I don't know, some of you may have context for that. Some of you may not. Um, but this guy, David, probably how our world knows about him is probably the story of Goliath. You, you seem to hear that even in secular realms, secular circles, about this, this man named David who fought this giant named Goliath, right? That's, that's kind of like what we hear about in our world. But it's good for us to ask this question. Who is this guy, David? Who is this king? How did he get here? What's his story? Because there's a lot of scripture on him from 1 Samuel 15 to 1 Kings chapter 2. Well, David is a real man who lived on this earth 
He, uh, he's, think of him as he, he lived back in the ancient Near East in like the thousand-ish B.C. Uh, he was a real man that walked the planet. And uh, he lived in Bethlehem in Judah, which is six miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, he was the son of Jesse, who had eight sons and two daughters. And David was the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz, if you know that story from the scriptures. Uh, but David was the youngest brother, so he had seven older brothers. And my heart goes out to him. My heart goes out to him. David was brought up to be a shepherd, which in those days, is, it was a very important job. Uh, but yet it was a very humble job. Shepherds were not the highest in society, vocationally speaking. But David was not a weak shepherd. He's a pretty tough shepherd. At one point where he's talking to Saul before he's about to fight Goliath, he tells him the stories about how, yeah, when a lamb came or uh, when a lion came and took my lamb or a bear came and took my lamb, I went after him and I killed him. Like, that's pretty courageous. He's a pretty tough dude. And so you'll see this courage. It comes out later when he slays Goliath with a sling and some stones. But while David was tough, he was also tender, and he was artistic. He was an artist. Uh, he played the lyre. He wrote a lot of the psalms, the songs, that middle section of the Bible. And you can see that a lot of those were attributed to David. He was a poet. So he was a warrior, a poet, a musician, a shepherd, and oh, by the way, how the scriptures describe him, he was ruddy, beautiful eyes, and handsome. He's the package deal, as it seems, as you're reading this. This man has it all, it seems. If you were with us last week, though, you remember we talked about a man named Saul, the first king of Israel, and how God rejected him. And what happened immediately after that, 1 Samuel 15, is Samuel then goes and anoints David because God told him to do so. And he goes and he anoints him, and eventually Saul and David's paths are going to cross. Uh, with Saul being rejected as king, God's spirit left him and left him with like a depressed spirit. At times he looked like he was crazy, out of control, uh, unhinged, as, as we'll see here in a few moments. But in order to soothe him, the king brought in someone. He asked and, and it was David, because he, could, he, played, a na he played a mean liar. He could, he could rip some serious solos on that and soothe Saul in his melancholy state. And so David actually played for Saul in order to soothe him. It's kind of how their first interactions took place. Well, at first, all is well with David and Saul until the Philistines come to town. Seems to be the story like that in Scripture. Everything's fine until the Philistines come to town. Well, the Philistines, they line up against Israel, and Israel, and, and they have this guy named Goliath, who's like nine feet tall, huge, incredible warrior, and he's coming out, and he's taunting Israel, and he's basically saying, bring out your best guy to fight me, and the winner wins all, basically. And Israel lines up against uh, the Philistines, but they're terrified. They send no one. And so David, he's, goes to, he's told to go visit his brothers one day on the front lines, and he hears about this Goliath. And he's struck in his heart because he cares about the Lord's honor. And he cares about this uncircumcised Philistine, as he says, speaking against the Lord. And so he's like, he's ready to take him out. And so he eventually, he steps up into it. He, he passes on Saul's armor. He's like, no, I, I can't wear that. It's too heavy, clunky. He takes with himself a sling and some stones, 
all right? You can just see this little boy David, right, shepherd against this ultimate seasoned warrior, Goliath. And David takes him out. He slays the giant, cuts off his head, and Israel wins the day. And because of this, you see Samuel or Saul had promised that anyone who does this gets my daughter's hand in marriage. And oh, by the way, no taxes for your family. It's a pretty good deal. You know, David got a pretty good deal out of that. So he ends up with Michael, Saul's daughter. And, um, but eventually what happens here is things digress. And they digress because as they're coming home from battle one time, and, and what would be characteristic is, you know, songs would be sung about these kings. And so one day, you know, Saul's coming home, right? And he wants, oh, songs are being sung about him. Oh, this is great. But the women are singing, David has slayed his ten thousands and Saul his thousands. And Saul's immediately jealous. And he's like, oh, I don't like this. And so he keeps his eye on David, keeps his eye focused on David with jealousy And then things start to digress. You know, he tries to hold David down, even though David's a military commander. Saul tries to hold him down. He demotes him, militarily speaking, trying to hold David down. And at one point, David is is playing for Saul, and Saul tries to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David gets away, and David runs, and Saul tries to arrest him, and he escapes from Saul. And then from this point on, David is basically going to be on the run. David's basically on the run from Saul, and there seems to be nowhere to hide. And so David pulls together this motley crew of fugitives, these other men. They become like his private little army. And during this time, uh, David has two opportunities to kill Saul, and he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it because he reveres what the Lord had done in Saul's life, that Saul was still king, and God hadn't taken him out yet. So he wasn't going to take him out. During this time, eventually, though, the Philistines come back again. There's another battle, and Saul does lose his life. And with Saul dead, David becomes king of Hebron for seven and a half years in Judah, basically over one of the tribes of Judah. He's king. But then eventually he becomes king over all the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, Uh, after God removes his enemies and those who don't want him to be king. And David would reign for 33 years, and during which Jerusalem would then become the capital. And David would build himself a house, a palace. Uh, Great things happened in the kingdom. Highways were opened, trade routes were restored, and the material prosperity of the kingdom was secured. And the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Arameans, the Edomites, the Amalekites, all the ites were subjugated to Israel. This was a good time for Israel. But this was not David's main ambition. He's spoken of as a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel 13, 14. And you can see evidence of this in that once he's in Jerusalem, he wants, to, he wants God at the center. So he brings the Ark of the Covenant to the center, to Jerusalem, where it dwells in the tent. And the Ark of the Covenant was a sign of God's presence among God's people. And so that leads us to where we are this morning, 2 Samuel 7, where King David has rest from his enemies. The Lord has made David king of Israel. 
and he's given him rest, and he's given him a house to live in, rest from his enemies. Life is good. Life is great right now. And in response, David's heart overflows in this passage, and he wants to build a house for the Lord. And that's who this King David is. But the Lord intervenes. He's building a dynasty for sure. And he, the Lord intervenes and he tells Nathan, who's the prophet who speaks to David, he tells him to tell David, I don't need this, nor do I require it from you, in verses four through seven. Instead, God makes promises to David, speaking of what he has done in David's life, speaking of what he will build for David. And so God took David from the pasture, from shepherd to king, And he has been with David, cutting off his enemies. And he promises to make David's name great. And God will appoint a place for his people Israel where they will dwell and not be disturbed. And instead, they will enjoy rest from their enemies. God is going to build a house for David that lasts forever. He emphasizes that over and over. And after David dies, he will have an offspring who God will raise up and establish David's kingdom. And David's offspring, which would be Solomon, would be the one to build God a temple. And David's throne will be established forever. God will be a father to him, and he will be to God a son. And when he sins, he will be disciplined. But notice this, God's steadfast love will never be taken from him. And David's house, his kingdom, his throne will be established forever. These are amazing promises. This is incredible that the God of the universe says this to David. This would be overwhelming. It is incredible, truly unbelievable. Can you imagine hearing from God these things? Like, God, I want to build you a house. I want to give you a place. And God goes, no, no. Actually, I'm going to build you a house that's going to last forever. Like, that would be amazing. And this passage is so important because it's so crucial to the overarching redemptive narrative of the entire Bible, of God's on mission to save a people for himself. And this, 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 this covenant that God is making with David is, is, is so crucial in this, as we'll see in a few moments. This is overwhelming And the word covenant is not actually in this passage, but yet it bears the marks of a covenant-making occasion. And even more so, as we read in Psalm 89 this morning for our call to worship, that whole passage points out from Ethan the Ezraite, who wrote that psalm, that Noah actually was a covenant. God did make a covenant with David in this passage. And if you're not, I understand you might not be familiar with covenant, we don't, probably don't use that word in our vernacular a whole lot these days. Um, but covenant is a promise or a pledge to do something. It's not a contract, okay? It's not a contract. It's a promise or a pledge to do something. It's an agreement based upon promises concerning the relationship between two or more parties. And so, for example, when you go to a wedding, and we have been and had some in our midst, quite a few lately, When you go to a wedding, a covenant is being made. That's what you are witnessing there. It's not just a ceremony. It's actually a covenant that is being entered into before the Lord. 
And so in this passage, I say all this because we're going to see six covenant promises made to David. And I'm borrowing here from Dr. Lanier as he highlights that there were six promises made to David here. And, there, and I'm going to run through them for you. So you want to have your, you want to have your finger in your Bible or uh, your hand in this passage. Uh, the first thing God does is he makes this promise of name in verse 9. I will make for you a great name. And then he makes this promise of place in verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And then he makes a promise of rest. I will give you rest from all your enemies, verse 11. And then he makes a promise of, a, of offspring, this dynasty of offspring in verse 13. The Lord will make you a house. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And then he makes this promise of an eternal kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Verses 13 and 16. And then he makes this last promise, promise of adoption in verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. All these promises about your name, the place, rest, offspring, kingdom, adoption. These promises are incredible and they go beyond David. Not all of these promises would be fulfilled during David's lifetime. The focus of this covenant is the establishment of a line of kings, a line of kings through whom the covenant promises would be fulfilled. And they are incredible promises. And you may be even tempted to think that God did this because David was so much better than Saul. You know, we can say in some ways, yes, David was a better king, right? Because he followed the Lord. But yet, we can't miss that it's actually God's grace and his steadfast love that is being shown to David. It's not because David was so much more worthy. And I say this because if you know David's story, you know that David had incredible moral failures. It's hard to read. It's hard to see these things. David would fall into sin that would result in discipline, as God promises in verse 14. You remember David, he would sin with Bathsheba when he would commit adultery. And then he would have her husband killed, which in fact was one of David's closest bodyguards. He would have him killed. Then later on, David's oldest son, Amnon, in the future would end up raping his half-sister, Tamar. And David wouldn't do anything. In response to this, Tamar's brother Absalom would eventually kill Amnon in retribution and then run away. And again, David would not do anything. It isn't until Joab, his commander, convinces him to recall his son Absalom and convinces him to actually talk to his son Absalom that David does something. And then there was this toward the end of his life. David would order a census of the Israelite men available for military service that actually brought on God's judgment 
because David was putting more faith and trust in his resources than he was in God. And so David actually sees thousands of his people die in a plague because of his behavior. Wow. Take that in. That is astounding. Those things are crushing. I don't know how you live through those things emotionally. I don't know how you deal with the shame, deal with the guilt, deal with the grief, deal with the brokenness. And here it is recorded forever as God's word. And sure enough, these things would leave their scars. But we do know how he lived through it, principally. While he had the scars, we know how he lived through it. It's because David was truly forgiven. And David knew the freedom of forgiveness, real repentance, turning back to the Lord. He understood this. Last week, we talked about this with Saul. Saul was a very good picture of false repentance. Dean talked to us about real repentance last week and how Saul had this false repentance. He was more worried about himself, his reputation, how he looked in front of the people, his, you know, being made sure that he looks good and still remains king. Meanwhile, you have David who sins against the Lord, but yet truly repents, not just in word, but in deed. As the scriptures talk about, he lived out his repentance. He performed deeds in keeping with his repentance, as the scriptures say in Matthew 3, 8. And so that David can say, Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David indeed was forgiven. He knew forgiveness. He understood how there could be sin and real repentance, real restoration. And yes, there would be discipline for him, but notice what God says to him. And this is something we need to know. In verse 15, God says, His steadfast love will not depart from him. His steadfast love will not depart from him. God's steadfast love is so evident here in this passage and those promises that are being made to David and they're being worked out in space and time. You see, God is the one who rules and reigns over his people, and he's doing something. He's doing something. He's building his kingdom through David that points to the perfect, the everlasting king in the line of David, and that is King Jesus, Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ, who, whose name is above every other name. There's name. Who has gone to prepare a place for us in heaven and will come back to get us. There's place. Who will give his people ultimate rest for all time when he returns. There's rest. Who is the son of David. There's the son. Who ushers in an eternal kingdom where God rules and reigns forever. And then who is also the royal son of God. 
the beloved son, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. All those promises that he was making to David didn't just exist and end there. They carried on pointing to someone greater who fulfills all of those things. And because of that, there is an overwhelming response for you and I. There's an overwhelming response in 2 Samuel 7 in David's life. I didn't get a chance to read it, but the rest of the section of chapter 7 is simply David responding, being overwhelmed in worship. He can't believe. He got it. He got what God was saying, that the promises were not just for the here and now and the near future, but forever. David got it, and it shows in his prayer in verse 19, verse 29, and 30. And how does he respond to this? Look at verse 18. Then King David went in, and he sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? You see, in light of all of these promises, what does he do? He goes into that tent, even though he wanted to build a temple. He goes into that tent, and he sits before the Lord. David is overwhelmed with a posture of worship. He needs to, he wants to go in and sit and be with his Lord, the one who has done great things. What God has promised is so great that David can't help but be drawn to the Lord in worship. He can't help but go be with him in light of these incredible promises administered in love. He can't help but go and speak with his Lord about how great he is, about how he has redeemed a people for himself in love. David knows relationship with the Lord. David knows communing with the Lord, so much so that he, he has the courage to call the Lord to keep his promise after what he just said. It's like he was saying, all of this is overwhelming. What you've just said is incredible. Now keep your promise. Keep your promise. Verse 25, the Lord confirmed, and he said, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. David's posture and picture of worship is in response to what God has said and that demonstrates a posture and a picture for us in how we are to live and how we are to live according to these covenant promises. 2 Samuel 7, just think about this. 2 Samuel 7 was done in space and time by real people, by a real God who exists that extends to all those and anyone and everyone who puts their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Samuel 7 points us to our God, our Father in heaven, who in steadfast love, he reaches down, giving us Jesus, so to speak, who is God in the flesh, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who truly fights for us, the one who truly protects us, who truly leads us, who truly provides for us, and the one who saves us who did all of that, saved us, when we thought, no, I got this handled. I'm okay. I don't need your help. And he condescended and he did this. 
you know what, we don't have it handled. Spoiler alert. David realized he was not enough. David realized he was not enough. Do you? Do you realize that you are not enough? David realized he was not a good enough king. He was not the king of all kings to bring full restoration and full salvation. Do you? And what do you do with that? What do you do? Well, David gives us a great picture here because in light of these incredible blessings, we are to enter. We are to enter in before the Lord in the security of a loving relationship with him, to sit before him and to say, who am I? Who am I that you would show me such incredible steadfast love that you would send your son to die for my sins so that I, through faith and trust in you, Lord Christ, you, King Jesus, that I can live eternally, that these promises are for me. You see, you are not enough. I am not enough. We are not enough. You will fall short. You will fail. But Jesus is the all-sufficient king who that we need, who can forgive us, who rescues us, and who is also the one, don't forget, who is going to take you home to the home that he has built for you. He is the one that we need to go and sit before and just worship in that steadfast love, the one who said, I am going to prepare a place for you. Listen to these words of John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. God is building a dynasty through this Davidic covenant that culminates in Christ. And everyone who puts their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be at home with Jesus in a home that has been built for them forever. And that's beautiful. Let's pray. Father, who am I? Who are we that you would show such incredible steadfast love to us, incredible grace, incredible mercy? You, Lord Christ, are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it is through you that you build us a house to dwell with you forever. And so, Father, I ask that you would help us to live that way, that we would respond with worship, that we would go and sit and be before you and just sit in it of what you have done. And may we praise and worship you. Father, work in us. Sanctify us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.